Well, okay, it's a pleasure to be together again this evening around God's Word. And I'll just say as we begin, tonight's message was not selected by the staff. They gave us liberty to uh, make some of those decisions. And tonight, this is my selection, so if uh, there's any, anything you have against it, don't blame the staff. But anyway, I just, uh, the second to last song we just sang said something to the effect, every vessel fill. And I was just impressed there as we met as brethren that had our prayer time, how that we're all alike in many ways, but we are all very distinct and different. And so my prayer tonight is, is that every particular vessel would be filled this evening. Now, I have some thoughts that I have studied and prepared, and it has to do with my life and things that I feel like I need, but my prayer again tonight is that every vessel, every distinct, every diversity that's here will get something from God's Word this evening, and I think that's our experience, and you're familiar with that too. When we talk through and with and by the Word of God, that just just happens, because the Word is quick and it's powerful and it touches us where we need to be. Tonight, you can see on the screen, I'm not going to change the screen very often, but this is what I'd like to speak about to you this evening. Three questions from Genesis 3. Three questions from Genesis 3. So I think we'd like to next just bow our heads and let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, as you've heard what I've already expressed, that is my desire that your word would be alive and quick and powerful this evening, and that beyond the thoughts that we share, that your word would come through and touch each of us just where you would like to touch us, and again, that we would be impacted for eternity, and that that impact would not only stick with us or stay with us, rather, but that it would permeate to those around us as we go forth in our lives from this day forth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I'd like to do is first of all read some uh, verses in Genesis chapter 3. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to begin there. I'd like to read the first 13 verses and I want to ask, is there anyone that has not read off the screen today or by volunteer? Anyone that has not read yet? Okay. You haven't? So we have two over here. So there's 13 verses. Would you be willing to do seven and six? You read seven, you read six. Please do that. Let's read then, or let's listen to them read verses 1 through 13 of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, and God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, thou touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God, doing good and evil. And the 
Behold, and when the woman saw the tree, it was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed big leaves together, and made themselves to eat. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden, and the field together. And Adam and his wife put themselves in the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was Thank you, brethren, for reading those verses. I think you'll find in these 13 verses five questions. We're just going to touch on three of them. And so what we're going to do is look at this first question, and it's found in the first verse. And I'm going to reread it, make just a few observations, and then we'd like to work through uh, what I will call a subtle attack on the Word of God, even in our culture today. But let's think about this first verse. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. I would just stop and say, and this is a side issue, evidently many of the beasts were subtle. But the serpent was the most subtle of all the beasts. And he said unto the woman... And here's our first question we want to think about this evening. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What I want us to see, and I've got this, really the question, I'm just boiling it down to the orange section. Yea, hath God said. What we see in this, this question from the serpent is the devil is trying to discredit or place doubt into the mind of Eve. And this is his method and his strategy. He always does this. He wants to place doubt. He wants to discredit. And he wants to distort. I want to make just a couple of additional observations before we start into what I would really like to get into with this question. But number one, we find that the serpent didn't say that there is no God. Now later on in human history... The serpent will be effective in convincing people to be atheists. He's not doing that here. It would have been too obvious, and he probably couldn't have got away with it. He would have had to have been much more subtle. But he doesn't say that. Neither does he say that God doesn't speak to humans. He doesn't say, now God doesn't even talk to you. What are you talking about? He just simply allows Eve to know there's a God. We can be there. He also allows us to know that God speaks to His children. We can be there. But where He begins the attack is trying to distort what God said. That's still the issue today. We, we come into uh, many cases where people will say, well, you're out of context. Or do you really understand what's being said there? 
Are you sure that's what the Word of God really means? And really the burden of what I want to what address is this is, a, this is a challenge for me, that there are passages of Scripture, and, and I, I would like to see them say something different. I want to challenge you tonight that is there any area in your life that you kind of wish that the Bible said something else? And I have a feeling that Eve, maybe this is too much speculation, but I have a feeling that she wanted what the serpent was saying. She maybe in her heart had a, a, an inkling of curiosity about that tree in the middle of the garden. I'm not, I can't say that for certain, but, but I know that's how it is with us today. Maybe we're in the depraved, in the, in the sinner condition, the physical, we're in the flesh, and maybe we're different than Eve was. But there's a tendency sometimes in us to want the Word of God to say something different than it really says. And so this little, this little question, yea, hath God said, in some cases can be music to our ears. So what I want to do, and I hope this isn't just a rabbit trail, but what I'd like to show is that down through human history... And it's not really through human history. It's just in the last little while, actually, in the United States, Brother Vince said it Sunday that, or maybe it was today, I forget, that when you, in the 1950s, you know, the United States was a great place. There was very little difference between the church and the world. But we've seen a constant and a, a subtle demise in culture. And Brother Vince talked about that Sunday, about the rebellion against God's created order. But I want to talk about four areas that I think that is important for us to consider of, God, of the serpent's attack on the Word of God. And I'm going to suggest them in a particular order because I think they actually affect the way in which we see the Word of God and to, the, to, to bring to light to what our culture is today. The first one, and I, I don't know that this is controversy with among us, but I'm going to suggest that the first attack I want to discuss is the undoing of the head covering for the sisters. You say, well, why, why would you start there? Because I believe what we see is that the devil very subtly begins to attack God's order and things begin to unravel from there. So I just want to cover just a few basic facts and maybe you're familiar with this, but all down through human history or Christian history, the church, the sisters, have worn a head covering in accordance with 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There was never really any, any uh, doubt about that until about the 1800s. And in the 1800s, there began to be an argument that became prevalent that long hair was the covering. And I'm going to suggest that that was just simply the, the serpent whispering into the ears of the church, Yea, hath God said? And I'd like for us to turn there, if you would. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to just, I'm not going to do this on every one of these uh, little arguments, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm just going to breeze through. But I want to just uh, point out just a couple of things here about the head covering. And I want us to see how that it's kind of ridiculous, I think, to, to claim that long hair would be the covering in accordance with what the Apostle Paul is saying. I'm going to direct you to verse 6. And it says, For if the woman be not covered, 
let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. So let's just plug in some values here. I'm going to, I know, I, this. just bear with me for one moment, but I want to just say that if in the 1800s, long hair equals the covering. That's what they said in the 1800s. Just a subtle suggestion. So let's just take this thought and make it logical. So if long hair equals the covering, short hair would have to equal what? Uncovered. So I want now to plug in those values into that verse 6 again. And let me read it to you how this would read. For if the woman have short hair, let her also be shorn. Does anyone know what shorn means? It means short hair. So let me read it again. And instead of saying shorn, I'm going to put short hair in for the word sh shorn. For if the woman have short hair, let her also have short hair. Does it make sense? It does not. All I'm saying is, is and this is the only thing I'm going to, to deal with there in particular about a particular verse, but I believe that this is just the subtle, suggestive nature of the way that the serpent deals with humanity. Okay, so in the 1900s, there were still many churches in the United States where sisters would wear the head covering, but the head covering that was obviously religious in nature begins to take on the nature of decorative hats. Again, just very subtle. Maybe, maybe that's not that big of a deal, but that's just what began to happen. And then even up until the 1960s, even in the Catholic Church, sisters wore a covering or a hat during worship service. And from then on, you go out today places and we meet people and you probably experience it and people have no... Uh, very little uh, awareness that we're wearing something on your head, sisters, that's connected to a particular passage in the Scripture. Rather, they think it's a costume, or it's your uniform, or it's your church pattern, or it's something that you just do as a culture. And all I'm saying is, is that in a subtle, progressive way, the serpent has continued to say to the church and to people, Yea, hath God said? He casts doubt and he, he casts doubt and he puts distortion on the word of God. Well, now what happens next then is in the middle, in the middle to the late 1960s, I believe the next thing that we see happening is women's liberation. Women's liberation was started in probably more than one way, but there was a book written in the 1960, year 1966 by a, a lady named Betty Friedan. And it was a book called The Feminine Mystique. And basically what she outlined in that book 
was the disillusionment and the emptiness of the middle-class American wife. That's what the book was about. Just how empty and how disillusioned and how unpurposeful or non-purposeful the middle-class American wife really felt. And, and thousands and maybe millions of American women read that book, and they began to, it resonated. And they thought, that's, that's how I feel. And so the women's liberation movement began to grow. And I'm not suggesting that men aren't responsible. I, I would suggest that perhaps a lot of that unfulfillment and disillusionment in the homes in the, in the middle 1960s in the United States was probably brought on by male chauvinism or problems in the home from the male side. I get that. But this thing of women's lib began to be emerging. And you know what happened next then is once that happened, women became stronger and stronger and they began to come out of the home and marriages. And really, that's about the time the Beatles and the rock and roll thing got to going in the United States. And so thus the sexual revolution was born. And I'm saying that all of this is the unraveling of God's principled order as, he, as the serpent has just continually said, Yea, hath God said. So let me read you a quote about the sexual revolution. This is not my words, but it says, Decades of reckless and irresponsible behavior has spawned a generation of fatherless children, broken homes, and incurable sexually transmitted diseases. Our society is struggling to deal with the social and economic problems all this freedom has brought us while scoffing at the old-fashioned ideas of self-control, modesty, and purity. So just a slow and subtle progression down this, this, this movement away from God's truth and order. And so today, women are not necessarily fighting anymore for equality, but they're actually fighting for supremacy. And so men in the workplace and in our culture are finding all kinds of attacks. And, you know, now, male, now the, the gender of maleness is being attacked, and we're having further problems. So that's all I want to say about this first area of distortion, which is the undoing of the head covering. So now I would like to have verses 3 and 5 read, and maybe we'll start here again at the front. Let's see, let's start over here at this corner. If you just read uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. And verse 5. But every woman that prayeth or prophesied with her head uncovered is not her Thank you. So all I'm getting out of those verses is number one, the order, God, Christ, man, woman. And number two, that second verse is that the sisters should cover their heads. That's what God said through the Apostle Paul. And so when we ask this question, yea, hath God said, I'd like for us to be able to say yes, that is what God said. Let's move to the second area that I want to discuss in this, this issue of yea hath God said, and that is what I'm calling the loosening of the stance of divorce and remarriage. 
Now, I don't know how this is affecting you all in the way in which your lives are, but I'm just trying to be faithful to the Word of God. And so I'm just going to give you just another quick rundown of how we have come to divorce the stance in the church or in our culture today. I'm going to start and just give you a statistic. In 19, from 1960 to 1980, the divorce rate in our country doubled. That's a 20-year period. That was from 60 to 80. But I want to point you to something that I didn't realize, but in 1969 there was a, a governor in the state of California named Ronald Reagan. This was before he was the president. But he signed a bill in California in 1969 called the No Fault Divorce Bill. I don't know if any of you remember that. But what that did is that gutted out the legal power of marriage to keep a man and a woman together with the document of a divorce. And basically what it allowed you to do is that any, either of the spouse could terminate the divorce with any reason or no reason. It was called the No-Fault Bill Divorce Bill of 1969. Well, of course, just about every state in the United States followed suit very quickly. And that was then became pretty common. Divorce began to flourish in the United States in 1976. Now we're talking about the United Methodist Church. And they come out with a statement like this, we recognize divorce and the right of divorced persons to remarry and express our concern for the needs of the children of such unions. To this end, we encourage an active, accepting, and enabling commitment of the church and our society to minister to the needs of divorced persons. Now, I'm not going to say that everything in there is wrong, but what I am saying is this just little one step at a time down this, this progression of going away from the obvious teaching of the Word of God. Today, our divorce rate is 50%, and, and in many cases, people are not even bothering to get married at all. Cohabitation is now a typical pathway to marriage. In fact, I have a statistic here that 66% of the couples that you see today that are married in the United States were cohabitating before they were married. And then, of course, some don't bother to marry at all. 50% of the children in the United States will have spent some time living with parents that cohabitated. The 50% of the people that you see out there in our culture are just pretty much accustomed to divorce and remarriage or cohabitation, rather. So now I'd like to have someone, if we keep coming down here, turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. And again, all I'm doing is just trying to pick out a few verses that I think are very pointed to give us what God says on these matters. 739, please. The wife is bound by the law as long as, as, long as her husband lives. So the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, which I believe this would supersede, and I don't want to get into a lot of controversy about the, the, the Gospels versus the Epistles, but this to me in 1 Corinthians 7 would be, in my mind, the teaching that the church needs to understand about divorce and remarriage. 
And all I'm saying is, is that just like Eve experienced this question, I believe it's still uh, going on in our culture today. So now that leaves us to the next issue, and that is homosexuality becoming accepted, and not just accepted, but promoted. Let me give you a few statistics. I've cut out some of the things that I think are not fitting for our audience, but in 1954, there was a respected study, this is in the United States, that shows that gay men are as well adjusted as straight men. 1964, Life magazine runs a positive cover story on homosexuality in the United States. 1967, just keep watching these years, England and Wales legalize male homosexuality. In 1972, Reverend William Johnson becomes the first openly gay minister ordained in the United Church of Christ. In 1983, Congressman Jerry Studs comes out, the first federal official to come out as a gay man. In 1993, the United States military adopts the don't ask, don't tell policy. That just simply means you don't ask if you have a gender orientation that's different. And if you do ask and do know, you don't tell. Don't ask, don't tell. That was in 1993. In 2003, the United Church of Christ affirms the participation and ministry of transgender people within the United Church of Christ and supporting their civil and human rights. In 2010, Washington, D.C. Mayor Adrian Fenty signed into law an amendment that allows same-gender couples to marry within the city limits of Washington, D.C. And just four years ago, in 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down all states' bans on same-sex marriage. And what that did is it legalized same-gender marriage in all 50 states. I'm just suggesting some of the ramifications of this question before us. Yea, hath God said. If you're watching the news or if you pay attention to the news, I just noticed in this next week of Thanksgiving, there's a halftime show of the Dallas Cowboys game. And there was a lady that was going to perform in that at halftime named Ellie Golding. And she was in, in conjunction with the Salvation Army. They were going to do the halftime show. Well, Ellie Golding's fans began to protest her being connected with the Salvation Army because they didn't believe that the Salvation Army supported the LGBTQ community. So they demanded, or Ellie, they, they began to put pressure on Ellie Golding. And Ellie Golding began to put pressure on the Salvation Army. And she said, if you don't give a generous donation to the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community, I'm not going to perform at the Cowboys halftime. And as far as I can read, and I haven't paid attention since I've been here, but I have a feeling that what, what I could glean is that the Salvation Army came out and said, we do not have any bias to those that we will help. In other words, the Salvation Army, they didn't make a donation to them as, as, as she asked, but they said, we don't have any bias and we will offer services to anyone regardless of their gender identity. And so as far as I know, that's still on schedule for the halftime on Thanksgiving Day. But you can see how this progression 
of just simply moving away from the Word of God, it, it becomes something that has just unraveled and is continually unraveling our society. I'd like someone now to please read, go back to Romans chapter 1. We're going to see, as we respond to this question on the screen, hath God said, we're going to see what He has said. I'd like you to read Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Just keep coming, each, each do a verse. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lusts one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseen, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their air with the human. Why don't we read one more verse? Please. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to reprobate money. Do those things which are not convenient. So I'm going to suggest, this is again New Testament. People like to quibble over Leviticus and different things about homosexuality. This is the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, addressing that this is not right. This is sin. That's what God says about it. So I'm suggesting that undoing the head covering in some way has led to women's liberation and in some way that has led into the sexual revolution, which led into more divorce and remarriage, which has led into this issue of homosexuality. And then the last area I want to just briefly discuss is gender confusion. I think Brother Vince mentioned this also. Something I've learned about this is, you know, it's not just a couple of genders. I found that there's at least 63 genders that they'll put a label to. But I also found that it's not even that much of, it's a, it's a spectrum. So you can find yourself on this line of gender spectrum. And so I imagine within the next few years, 63 is not going to be the total amount of genders that people can say they are. And I, I wrote a bunch of them down, didn't put them in my notes. I didn't quite think I really wanted to get all that involved. Heterosexual, homosexual, lesbian, bisexual, there's all kinds of confusion. We're not going to go into any of those, but I have a quote here from a doctor who says that people who undergo gender reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa, but rather they become feminized men or masculized women. And he says, in reality, it's a mental disorder. All I'm saying is from a scientific standpoint, you cannot change the biological aspect of who you are. You can think something differently in your mind, but it doesn't change who you are in your body. And so as our culture is just, just going rampant with all of these issues, I think it just still comes back to what does God say? And so I'd like someone to read from Genesis chapter 1. And I think this verse has been referenced a couple of times so far, Sunday and maybe even uh, today. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And see if you can see how many genders are listed. Whoever, go ahead. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them. Male and female created he them. I think I just saw two. Is anybody seeing any more than two? 
Well, that's what God says. So the question is, yea, hath God said? I know that was specific in the context of Genesis chapter 3 where we're beginning here, but I'm suggesting that it's still going on in the world today with the serpent challenging people to challenge God's word. So I think that maybe is out there. That's the world. And we may say, what's it really got to do with us? But let's bring it in just a little closer here before we go on to our second question. I've already alluded to it, but do you have any areas in your life that you could think of that you would really like to see the Word of God change? I think about some places, especially when it comes, say, to nonconformity. I think there's sisters among us that share with me maybe their struggle with how different they have to look or and they just would like to have a little bit more leeway here or there and maybe there is some latitude in the scripture but that might be an example of something that you know I just wish we could just take some things out of the scripture and I want to challenge us tonight to commit to not changing the Word of God in any way shape or form I know we're all subject to error, and we want to do the best we can, but I would encourage us to be very careful in our study of the Word of God. It's one of the reasons that we really have a huge benefit in Brother Vince Ty. I'm not trying to just uh, give him too much credit, but he is a very, very, very good source for us as a people to keep us rightly dividing the word of truth. And not just Vince, there's many uh, brethren among us, but we need to all be exercising in this, this issue of, of rightly dividing and parsing the word of God and not having any desire whatsoever to explain it away. That's my burden tonight. I have that feeling and struggle sometimes. I want to make sure that that's clear. I'm not pointing my fingers here at anyone I'm just suggesting that when this little voice whispers, yea, hath God said, that we need to come back with what God says, and we need to know what the Bible says. I want to just mention two words, and I, I know that some of you maybe have heard me say this, or maybe you've heard other people say it. There's two words when it comes to the Bible, study, and I'm going to write it out so you don't get confused with Jesus. It's a G. These are not English words. Eisegesis, exegesis. Eisegesis means to bring to. So if I have a presupposition or if I have a desire and I want to bring my idea to the Word of God, that's eisegesis. I want my thoughts and I want to make the Bible say what I want it to say. That's eisegesis. Now on the other hand, exegesis is like that exit sign over there or this one. Exa means to go out or to take out. So when we're studying the Word of God, we want to be exegesis, meaning we're taking the meaning of the Word and the words out of the Scriptures and we're not bringing ourselves into it. Does that make sense? Isa versus exegesis. So I would encourage you as you study the Word of God to ask yourself, what does it say? That's observation. What does it mean? That's interpretation. And what does it mean to me? That's application. All I'm doing is just encouraging you to do a careful study when you study the Word of God. And I'm going to give you just a couple of examples 
And then I'm going to move on to the second question. But here are a couple of ways, or I've got 20, but I'm only going to give you just a couple of ways in which the Word of God is twisted. The first one is called twisted translation. And what that means is when a biblical text is retranslated, not in accordance with sound Greek scholarship. And so it, it, it's this eisegesis. It is, it is interpreted in a way to, to come to a preconceived idea. And let me give you one example. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll say in John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They add that little A in there. If you look in your King James Version, there's no A. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's no A. That's the difference between true and twisted translation. Here's another example, wordplay. I think we as, I, I can think of ministers even in our fellowship that might tinker around with this. Maybe not to this extreme, but wordplay is when you take a word or a phrase from a biblical translation and you, and you uh, interpret it as if the revelation had been given in that language. So let me give you an example. The name Adam. Someone has taken that name apart, A-dam. And then they try to say, well, in the English language, A-dam... A dam is something that blocks water. And so now they say, well, Adam actually means, and this is a true uh, illustration, Mary Baker Eddy says that the name Adam consists of two syllables, a dam, which means an obstruction, in which case Adam signifies the obstacle which the serpent sin would impose between man and his creator. So they build a doctrine off of this little wordplay of taking an the word in English and acting like they can build a doctrine. Saying but not citing. A writer says that the Bible says such and such and such and such, but they don't cite you to a text. And one of the most important ones that often people say is God helps those who help themselves. And you won't find that in the Bible. I've got several more here. I want to just make a couple of more. A confused, well here, a confused uh, definition. It's a biblical, biblical term is misunderstood in such a way that an essential, essential biblical doctrine is distorted or rejected. For example, Edgar Case's followers confuses the Eastern doctrine of reincarnation with the biblical doctrine of being born again. It's subtle. Esoteric interpretation. This is a woman that believes that she has esoteric ability. Her name again is Mary Baker Eder, Eder, Eddie, excuse me. She says that the Lord's Prayer, when it says, Our Father which art in heaven, because she has esoteric power, she says it actually means, Our Father, Mother, God, all harmonious. And where she gets that is within her esoteric nature and power as a self-proclaimed esoteric person. I'm going to leave it all at that, but just simply say that when this, this issue comes up, yea, hath God said, I want us to commit to this issue that we are not going to explain away the Word of God. We're going to try to use true exegesis. We're going to be careful 
and we're going to try to apply the Word of God and accept it what it says. So if I ask the question, Yea, hath God said, I want us to say in unison, Yes, God has said. So I'm going to back up and let's see if we can say it with each syllable when the word bounces. Yes, God has said. Okay, here we go. Yes, God has said. Okay, that's our response. That's our commitment. When that little whisper comes to us, yeah, God said, and we really kind of want it to be different than it really is, we want to come back with this answer. Yes, God has said, and leave it at that. Let's turn our attention now to the second question in Genesis chapter 3, and it's found now in verse 9. What, what's my time frame here again? When is this over? What, seriously, is it nine? Nine? Okay. Is it eight? Okay. All right. And the Lord God called unto Adam, I'm in verse nine, and said unto him, Where art thou? I want to make just a few observations on this verse. First of all, if you look at your wording or your actual capitalization in the verse 9, you have all caps Lord and you have upper and lower caps on God. And that usually has a significant meaning and in this case it does. And the Lord here means Jehovah, which means self-existent one or self-existent God, Jehovah. And the word God, upper and lower case, means Elohim. And Elohim means the supreme or the one that has the ability to make the best and most precise judgment call. A supreme magistrate. Jehovah Elohim. Self-existent supreme judge. So that's who's doing the talking. We understand that. But notice the next word. It says he called unto Adam. This is the word ka-ra. And I have never looked at this word and what... What interests me about it is what this, this word means is to, to cry out loudly or to accost in anguish. And so as I think about the phrase, he cried with a loud voice, it kind of made me think of what happened on the cross when Jesus said, why hast thou forsaken me? But I believe, let's see, I wanted to turn this, didn't I, to get to the next question. We're on this question now. I have a feeling that as God called to Adam, Jehovah Elohim calls out, he's crying out in anguish. It's like, Adam, where are you? It's not, and that's the second observation I want to say. God never asks questions to get answers. He already knows the answers, but what he does with questions is he asks us questions and it begins to cause us to make a response. And when we begin to respond, I believe God is setting us up where he can begin to work in our lives. And so that's what's going on here. But just think about the anguish as God recognizes what just has happened. That they've sinned. And that wasn't a surprise to God either. But he calls out loudly. And another thing I want to make an observation when he says, where art thou? This word where can be translated where, how, or what. So it could have been here in the King James, it could have been said, how are you? Or what are you? Or in other words, what have you become? Uh, 
What I want to look at now is the response that Adam gives. And this is really what, rather, I said we're talking about three questions, but verse 10 is where I'd like to spend the applicable part of, of this, this part to, to our lives. And he said, verse 10, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So what I want to do is I want to just think about each one of these responses that Adam gives. First of all, he says, I heard your voice. What happens to us when we hear his voice, when we are in sin or when we are in guilt, is naturally what's going to happen is we're going to have this fear, and this fear is going to cause us to hide. My question is, and this is something that I want to just apply, maybe this is a little sloppy with the context and with the exposition, but I want to think about this first aspect of hearing his voice. Now, I know Adam is hearing his voice. He's a sinner now, and he has a whole a host of responses because of it. But I want to ask us tonight, do you hear God's voice? When he calls, do you hear? Do I hear? And do we hear him speaking, or do we hear the serpent speaking? Let me give you a contrast. I think it was Brother Raymond that mentioned that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's the true mark of one who hears his voice that they follow. But here's some of the voices that we hear. You're missing out. That's not the script. That's not the, the shepherd. That's not God speaking. Vince told us that Colossians tells us, instead of that you're missing out, that you are complete in him. Now there, that is God speaking. Another voice we might hear that's from the serpent is you're not good enough. You're not accepted. And that drives people, and myself included, we all want to be accepted. We all want to be good enough. We all want to look good in people's eyes. But that's a voice that comes out of the whisper of, of the evil one. You're not good enough. But what does it tell us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6? You are accepted in the beloved. You don't fit. You just don't fit. But Paul tells us that God has set us in the body as it has pleased him. And then maybe the serpent will do something different and he'll say, you're just fine. You don't need anything. And that's another tactic. And what does the Bible say? He says, take heed lest you fall. That's in 1 Corinthians also. Here's another one. I find this to be something I hear from time to time. You're legalistic, and you misunderstand grace. And, of course, we alluded to it, if we didn't say it, uh, Sunday, that in first, or Ephesians 2, verse 10, it says that we are his workmanship created unto good works. So I'm just suggesting that if you're hearing voices, and you're like Adam... I just encourage us to know the Word of God so that we can discern His voice. And just like uh, Jesus would say, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Second thing I see here, it says, Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Fear. And this is something that 
I wish I knew more how to express what I'd like to say about fear. But as I are talking about our culture and just just watching subsequent generations, you know, we always think the next generation is losing it or whatever, and every generation before us thought the same thing. But one of the things that I wonder about is, is if we aren't losing fear, a proper fear of God. And I would say it, let, let me just say, I had two categories. There's a, there's a fear of God that ought to be in place for the unbeliever that is quite different than the fear that ought to be in place for the believer. And so I'm thinking that there is even a dumbing down of the wrath of God for the unbeliever. But, but the unbeliever should be afraid of God in a way that ought to cause them to repent. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And so I think we've got this wimpy idea that God is just all love. But I think the scripture is clear that God is a terror. He is full of terror when it comes to sin. He hates it. He's got wrath reserved. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 We should wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the... What's it say? From the wrath to come. There is wrath reserved for the unbeliever. And we need to know that that is coming. Revelation 6, 17, For the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Revelation 19, 15, He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So my first point about fear, I know we're, we're kind of springing out of Adam here in the third, third chapter, but, but the believer, the unbeliever, needs to be afraid of God in a way that would lead them to repentance, or at least get their attention. It says the goodness of God leadeth us to repentance, but fear is something that is valuable for the unbeliever. Now let's think about the believer. That's what I would call a proper reverence and awe. Psalm 19, verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is speaking about fear in a positive way. Fear that has a proper reverence. 2 Corinthians 7.1, having therefore these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And 1 Peter 1.17, And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. I just want to ask you, young people, do you have reverence and awe and respect for God? You don't have to answer me, but just contemplate that question. Because what I think can happen is we preach grace, which we should, to the point that we just round off all the edges of God's holiness and His righteous demands. And Jesus Christ is more than sufficient to satisfy those demands of God's holiness, but we need to recognize His, His, His nature and we need to have that proper reverence and fear. So Adam, he said, I heard your voice. The challenge to us there is to make sure we hear His voice. 
Then he said, I was afraid. And let's make sure we have the proper fear. And then he says, I was naked. What I want us to ask ourselves here is, do we see our need? Adam saw his need. It was new to him to understand something different about his character and his being. But he knew his need. And that's my burden and my question to myself and to you. Do we see our need for, well, if we're an unbeliever, I don't think there's any of us here that way this evening. Do we see our need for justification? But if we are a believer and we're born again, do we see our need for sanctification? And this is the thing where I think the American church in particular, and of course Raymond would have more experience of different cultures than I would, but it just seems to me that in the American Christian church, we're just satisfied to get justification and to get saved, as we call it. But we have no further uh, motivation or seeing ourselves with a further need to grow in sanctification. And so that's the question. Do we see our need? So I'd like to have, whose turn is it to read? You're right here. Let's go to Philippians 3, verse 14. And then if... if you would look for Ephesians 4.13 and jumping across the aisle if you'll look for 2 Peter 3.18. So first of all, Philippians 3.14. We're talking about moving on in sanctification. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, Lori. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the Son of God, to mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, and then 2 Peter 3.18. So those are just a of that I think are very clear that we need to move further into our sanctification. So Adam saw his need, and I'm asking, do we see our need? The last thing that we see in Adam here, he says, I hid myself. The, the application that I want to draw out for this is, are you hiding anything from God? And that's ridiculous to even ask it that way, because we know that there's absolutely no way that we can do it, even if you try to hide something from God. And you can hide things from other people, and perhaps it's okay to do that. There has to be a safe and a, con a context where you can share. But the question tonight is, is are you hiding anything from God or from people that need to know? I want to just uh, keep uh, going here with a few more scriptures. Uh, Caleb, if you would turn to Jeremiah 23, 24. Let's read that thinking about th this issue of trying to hide things. Adam says he hid himself. 23-24. Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? Okay, let's go on to Psalm 139, verse 7. Whither shall I go They're going to verse 8 then. I, I must have not noticed this. For if I ascend, is that 8? Okay. 
So those two verses give us the realization that it's ridiculous to think that we can hide from God. Now let's go to Psalm 32.7, Garrett. Because here we're going to see that what we want to do, rather than hide from, we want to hide in. Ver Psalm 32.7. So, so here we see that He is our hiding place. We need to bring everything about us, and ourselves included, right on into His presence. Hebrews 4.13 is the last one I have here. Okay, so thank you for reading. I'm just saying to us that if we think we can hide, we can't. And the call of that one scripture in Psalm 32 is that we would hide in Him. Bring everything about us to Him. So the question to Adam was, where art thou? He said, I heard thy voice, I was afraid, I was naked, and I hid myself. So what we're going to do now is push this button twice. And here comes our answer to what we just were trying to say. He said that I heard, I was afraid, I'm naked, and he hid himself. But what we want to change it to is that I hear, and I'm encouraging you to hear God's voice. I fear, and I'm not suggesting that we fear in the wrong way. If we are an unbeliever, we need to fear God because of the wrath to come. If we are a believer, we need to have proper reverence and offer Him. I need, I need, and I'm open. I see my need, and I open myself up to you. I hide nothing to you. So let's back this up, and let's in unison. I don't know how many bounces this has, but we're just going to try it. So here we go. I hear, I fear, I need, I'm open. Okay, let's do it one more time. I think that was fun. I hear, I fear, I need, I'm open. <laughs> okay, kind of gets quick at the last. Okay, let's turn to our final and uh, third and final question, and it's found in verse 11, Genesis 3, 11. And he said, this is again Jehovah Elohim, Asking Adam, who told thee that thou was naked? Who told thee that thou was naked? I want to make just a couple of observations. This is a rhetorical question. God knew the answer. Let's see, we can turn this going. But no one told Adam that he was naked. But the way in which he knew was there was something called a conscience. That's what I call it. It was the awakening of the conscience. No one had to come up to Adam and shake his hand or, and tell him that he was in this condition. His conscience was awakened, and that's exactly what God had said would happen in Genesis chapter 2, that if you eat of this tree in the middle of the garden, that you're going to know good and evil. And again, that's why I think that part of his soul, the part of our tripartite being that was still in place, we talked about this morning, is the soul. It's the part that knew something was going wrong. 
that emotional center that could understand guilt. And what we see then is a sequence of blame. Notice now what happens when God asks Adam about who told thee that thou was naked. He, he goes on to say, Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And then watch this sequence of blame in verse 12. And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. So she, he blames Eve. And so the Lord God... Jehovah Elohim said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. So my challenge for myself in this question and, in, and to you tonight is when you feel guilt, do you have a tendency to blame someone else? That's really where I'm going with this last question. Do you blame other people or do you take responsibility and I know there's probably circumstances that will make your answer different but I want to turn to Romans 14:10 I don't know whose turn it is probably Luke if we just come around and come back Luke 14:10 I'm just wanting to build just a little case to the fact that we all are responsible for ourselves Romans 14:10 Okay, so this is in the context of people getting along, but and he's talking about judging each other, but the point we want there is that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm trying to suggest that Adam was responsible for himself, just like Eve was responsible for herself, just like you are responsible for you, yourself and myself as well. We're all responsible for ourselves. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5.10. So again, we're not talking about gaining or losing salvation. But what we're talking about is what I would be comfortable calling rewards. Every one of us will uh, appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we will receive rewards or lacks of rewards based on what we did here in our sanctification with what grace God had given to us. One final place, Revelation 22.12, the last chapter in the Bible, if we could read that next, Revelation 22.12. So all I want to do with those verses is just to point out to us that when we have guilt and when we sin, we need to recognize that we are responsible and every single one of us are going to give an account for ourselves. Even though there's probably a tendency in us to want to push blame, we don't like the idea of feeling condemnation and blame, and we just have this tendency to want to push it off. But I want to just say there's two extremes in blame. First, there is the people that 
will try to blame everything on everybody else, no exception. And I know a, a couple of people that I can think of right now that doesn't matter what happens, they always find a way to blame other people. There's also another extreme, and that is that you tend to blame everything on yourself. No matter what happens, it's my fault. I know I shouldn't have did that. I probably caused it because, you know, they hurt me because I probably did something to them first. And so we get this crescendo of blame going towards ourselves, and that's not necessarily correct either. So what I want to say to us is if, if we're blaming others, it's because we're trying to take the focus off of ourselves so we can feel better. We might blame someone because they've hurt us and we'd like to hurt them back. Or it just comes natural for us to want to shift blame on other people. But if you are one who blames yourself for everything, I would say you're listening to the wrong voice. Maybe you are at fault and we need to take responsibility. But if you find yourself always blaming yourself for everything, just make sure you're listening to the right voice. And you need to, you need to care. Maybe you care about the wrong audience. I always think about this even in preaching. You know, when you get up and give a message or something and you want some affirmation or you want somebody to say that was nice or whatever, the real audience that, that I have to be concerned with more than any other thing is this one audience that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The one audience... And so if I want to blame myself or if I want to get into this blame game, sometimes I'm caring about the wrong audience. I don't know if that makes sense. And then the last thing I put down here is sometimes when we blame ourselves, we're looking to the wrong Savior. By that I mean if we're blaming ourselves, sometimes we must be putting too much emphasis on our ability to, to save ourselves. I don't know if that makes sense. But we must recognize that when we sin, there's a place for our sin. And that's a place called Jesus Christ. He says, cast your care upon me before I careth for you. He says, come unto me all you that labor and I, and, and I will give you rest. Come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So I want to just conclude with this, this thought again. Who told thee that thou wast naked? Well, we have a conscience. We have the ability within ourselves to feel guilt. But my challenge tonight is if you have anything in your heart that you're hiding or that you're dealing with, that let's just be sure that we rightly place the blame in the right place. And it may be our fault, it may not be our fault, but what most of the time needs to happen for me is I need to just simply repent. I think it would have been so much different, I don't know how it would have changed the course of history, if when God asked these, these two in, in the garden, you know, where are you and who told you you were naked? If Adam could have just said, you know what, God, I, I did exactly what you said not to do. I have sinned and I recognize it. I take full responsibility for it and I'm sorry. That's the right response, isn't it? Instead... He says, well, I heard your voice. Um, I, was, I was afraid. 
I was naked, I hid myself, and God knew all that would happen, that would be the course that it would take, and then he says, who told you? Then he starts blaming, and Eve blames the serpent, and we know the rest. Then comes the curse. But that leads us then to our last and final slide. So if I were to ask, or if God was to ask me, who told me that I was naked? I could say no one told me that. I've got, a, I've got a conscience, and the Holy Spirit prompts me to know. And I don't have to push the blame anywhere. I just need to repent. And that's my final call. So, if I ask this final question, let's back up here. How many bounces is that? No one. I repent. Okay, so we can do the, last, the two syllables on the last two bounces here. <laughs> All right, here we go. You ready? No one, I repent. Okay, so all I want to just use as this little, these three questions from the Genesis 3 is just to help us dig into our hearts just a little bit to determine where we are with God. And I know that, again, our desire this evening was that somehow something could be stirred in your heart that isn't necessarily from maybe what I said, but that the Holy Spirit could be prompting us to repent. And we don't have to be afraid of that. Jesus is our Savior. He's willing to carry all of our burdens, all of our struggles, all of our confusion. And so I just encourage us that the Lord would just use these verses and this subtle progression of what the devil can do in our life to just wake us up and realize we may have some issues where the Word of God is not touching us like it ought to, and we're trying to change it to suit our liking, or we're trying to blame others. Wherever it is, let's just, I'll just leave it in God's hands. So I think I'm finished. I think we could have prayer. Maybe that'd be a good way for me to, to close out. So let's bow our heads. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You again for time that we could spend together. And Lord, we don't know uh, how your word will touch us in what areas, and, and we, we realize that we bumble and we mumble through, th through thoughts. And we just ask you to forgive us of anything said unclear or confusing or anything that would lead anyone astray, that you would uh, rescue the, the words, the thoughts, and the messages that have been proclaimed here and that they could be brought into a, a, an accomplishment that your word would accomplish, that it, it is sent out to accomplish. So bless each of us tonight as we just uh, have communication and fellowship after this, that you would just guide our lives, our hearts, our conversations as we go back to our rooms, and that again tomorrow we would be refreshed and able to worship you again and that our lives would be richer and better as we continue to find uh, teaching and truth from your word. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for coming as that Redeemer and redeeming us, the human race having opportunity through your death and your burial and your resurrection, and that we can, we can be in you and you can live in us and we can be born again and we can have relationship and your Holy Spirit can speak to us and we can... Our spirits can bear witness with your spirit, and you can guide and direct. So thank you for all of these spiritual blessings, for your 
intercession for us as you sit at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.